This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Aretha Franklin, respect. You're in your face on 3CR with James. On today's show, HIV policy expert Joel Murray discusses the New South Wales government's proposal for mandatory HIV and bloodborne virus testing. We interviewed Devin Taylor from the Women's Circus about their production, The Drill. And later, Joe Ball from Switchboard joins us. You're listening to 3CR Radio. And we do have HIV policy expert Joel Murray on the line. Joel, welcome. Welcome back to the program. It's always great to be on the show, James. Joel, how did we get to this point, mandatory HIV and bloodborne virus testing in New South Wales? Yeah, it seems like there's been some activity over the last little while. I mean, we talked a few months ago about what was happening. Late last year, we had a con- there was a consultation from the Department of Justice kind of asking about what a response to the issue of people spitting at emergency services workers, including police. Then uh, last week we had the leader of the opposition, Labor leader, come out and say they were going to introduce a bill to the parliament to introduce mandatory testing. Now, this came as quite a shock to not only people within the community, but also um, I've talked to some of the members of Labor from Labor's left, and they're also um, shocked and surprised. And then uh, the, this week, the uh, what we've seen is now the government has decided that they're going to introduce their own legislation. So basically, if someone's bodily fluids come into contact with frontline workers such as police or paramedics, it's then up to the relevant agency such as the police or the ambulance service in New South Wales to make a decision about whether or not a mandatory test is required. Is that how it would work? That's one possible way it could work. We haven't yet seen any drafting of the legislation, so... Um, your guess is as good as mine, but it does look like that is what the police association at least want to see implemented. Now, um, where this uh, law operates in other states, such as in the state of Victoria, there is a requirement for a medical for medical oversight or some checks and balances that are in place to ensure that the law is not used where it's not necessary or it's not used as a way to gain power over a person or to detain a person um, unnecessarily. So it's looking like it's going to be a fait accompli, which, and that means that um, this legislation is going to be introduced. It's likely to pass because it's got the support of the coalition government and of Labor members. So what we're... Well, what community can do is to try and really agitate for some of those checks and balances to be 
uh, included as amendments to um, a bill that comes before the House. Of course, this policy has been widely condemned by health organisations such as the AIDS Council of New South Wales, ACON. They're saying this is based on flawed science, that there's no risk, for example, of HIV transmission if someone's bodily fluids do come into contact, say, with police. So why are we why are we going down this path? Is it because the Premier is playing catch-up with a newly minted and popular opposition leader? Like, what's going on politically? Yeah, look, um, you know, the Police Association are a very influential lobby group for um, police officers. Certainly there are other unions, such as the Health Services Union and the Public Services Association, have come out in support of this. The policy and the, and the proposed laws are based on misinformation, um, information that's outdated, you know, information that maybe we would have expected back in um, maybe the 90s, but certainly not you know, in 2019, when we're looking at a really conclusive body of evidence that shows that, first of all, you know, spitting or biting, you cannot pass on HIV or hep C. And we're also, you know, looking at even if testing were to occur, for example, um, if today, if, if, I, if someone forced me to have a test for HIV and hep C, both would come back as reactive and positive. But does that actually give the emergency services worker any reassurances about the likelihood of transmission? Well, no, it doesn't because, number one, the evidence is, you know, from spitting and and biting you can't transmit. But also I'm on um, effective treatment for HIV, which means I can't pass on the virus, and I've been treated for hep C, which means I can't, like, I've no longer got hep C, even though that that test comes back reactive. So the point is that this testing doesn't actually... That, um, you know, the police association want it because it, it's meant to provide some sort of assurance to um, a person who's been assaulted, but it actually doesn't provide those assurances. And in some instances, it may provide uncertainty or greater uncertainty or false promise. Well, that's right. Well, seems to be really undermining the U equals U campaign, doesn't it? Because, of course, uh, even though someone may be HIV positive, of course, if they're on antiretroviral treatments, they have zero viral load. So there's no risk of passing on HIV. So um, that's correct. There's multiple layers of stigma um, at play. There's HIV-related stigma. There's definitely stigma towards people who inject drugs, which is, while it is the primary route of transmission, but Hep C. Not everyone who has Hep C has, you know, has a history of injecting drugs. And so, you know, I, I've seen this playing out in the media as well. You know, even comments from frontline workers, nurses and um, other emergency services workers who are saying, you know, this is needed, this is, they're in support of it. But much of the language that I've been seeing is highly stigmatising, you know, you know, basically assuming someone's bloodborne virus status on the basis of um, what they look like or maybe the fact that they, they have um, disclosed that they're a person who injects drugs. So it's this stigma that's really driving it when really what we need to do is have more sensible and informed educative experience and to talk uh, talk to police I and mean, other emergency service workers is about what the risk is from spitting and from biting um, but also about the, the processes and policies and procedures that are already in place to deal with occupational exposure to bloodborne viruses are adequate and are the best course of action. Is this policy a law and order race to the bottom? Yeah, look, I think I think it is. I think you've hit the money on the, the nail on the head, um, particularly because where we're seeing New South Wales as one of the last jurisdictions that uh, hasn't introduced legislation of this kind. I think the news comes 
at the wrong time as well. Like we were already seeing in the community and we've seen in the media this week around, you know, New South Wales police strip searching minors and not having not seeing a problem with that. So the community's confidence in the police at the moment is not at a at a great high. And um certainly this kind of behaviour that gives police the power and the potential to yield this kind of power over people experiencing marginalisation, um, particularly, you know, um, people of colour, um, it could, you know, this could, this, the, the implications for this type of policy is quite far-reaching and it's quite serious. Has the Premier misread the political tea leaves considering all the outrage about the strip searching of minors in New South Wales? Is there a chance she may backflip? Look, I, I would I would love to say I'm hopeful for a backflip, but uh, it seems like the um, Minister for Police and um, also the Minister for Corrections seem to be kind of really pushing this agenda. I don't I don't know how secure the Premier is in her leadership. I have heard murmurings of some split even within the government around which ministers may be in support of this policy and other ministers that have been rolled. Um, it's certainly by the optics um, and the lack of the health minister present in these media releases, it seems like that the, the, the health perspective hasn't been taken into consideration. And in fact, if the health perspective was taken into consideration, I'm not sure we would have these laws being proposed. So it's quite feasible the Premier is using this issue as a football to try and save her leadership? Quite possible. How are civil liberties groups in New South Wales reacting? Look, you know, when we've heard a little bit from civil liberties groups, but it's mostly um, we're hearing from, you know, AFAO, the Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations and ACON, the National Association of People with HIV and Positive Life New South Wales, as well as ASHEN, the Australasian Society of HIV, Viral Hepatitis and Sexual Health Medicine. So um, really, like, there's a push is coming certainly from, uh, certainly at the moment, it's coming from um, health organisations, but I'm sure that we're not the only ones who have been contacting our local members of parliament and raising our concerns. Is the Premier and the New South Wales government framing this issue around HIV transmission or, they, or are they more concerned about hepatitis C and other bloodborne viruses? Look, they've been quite neutral in terms of the language they've been using has been just generically bloodborne viruses, although um, there are, I have concerns in the way, um, I mean, there's been some other things happening where um, Corrective Services New South Wales have been talking publicly around the issue of, say, for example, um, needle and syringe programs in prisons and been talking about, you know, AIDS-infected blood, which, of course, blood, you know, AIDS is not associated with, with the blood in any way. AIDS are a number of conditions that a person can get once their immune system's completely um, depleted as a result of HIV. So, I mean, it's HIV that's transmitted in blood. And so if this is like the view, these are the views that are put from frontline services workers and the people who represent them and the organisations that represent them, then it sounds like we really, really, this is an education opportunity and an opportunity where we need to be setting the record straight and being really clear about what the evidence is rather than this kind of populist, punitive approach. The New South Wales Parliament, of course, has a high-profile LGBTIQ community. MP Alex Greenwich, how has he responded to this issue? Is he representing the community's interests well? Yes, 
um, I'd have to say um, Alex has been really on the forefront of being, you know, being quite aggressively but also rationally stating the claim, the impact that it potentially will have on people living with HIV, on the LGBTQ communities more broadly and other communities that intersect with this, um, you know, people living with bloodborne viruses, people who, um, people who inject drugs, also, you know, people... Other um, people who might be caught up in this law who might not be living with bloodborne viruses, but the police wish to, you know, further marginalise or increase their powers to, you know, essentially make scapegoats of, of, of this um, of these laws. Last time we chatted about this issue, we talked about Alan Jones. Uh, has he reacted to the issue? I mean, it's kind of a bit of a wedge for him, isn't it? Being from um, the look, community, we haven't heard from we haven't heard from Alan Jones, but we did unfortunately hear from Ray Hadley, who um, uh, is of that similar ilk. And Ray um, spread um, quite salacious and um, ill-informed views about frontline services workers being exposed to bloodborne viruses and then not being able to touch their kids for six to twelve months. It was all just this real hyperbole. It wasn't, wasn't based on evidence, and in fact, it was like we we were back at the beginning of the epidemic when we didn't really know how. HIV was transmitted. I would have expected more from Ray Hadley, but as well, I mean, this is uh, his listenership is quite broad, and this is potentially not the right type of information that we need to be broadcasting in order that we start to reduce stigma around bloodborne viruses. John Murray, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Thanks for your time, the Savo. We'll talk again, no doubt. Thanks, James. Cheers. Bam, bam. Rock the nation. Take over television and radio station. Bam, bam. The truth shall come, give the corporation some complication. Michael Franti, Rock the Nation. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. While the Women's Circus has a new production called The Drill, opening later this month in Melbourne. On the line, we have Devin Taylor from the Women's Circus. Devon, welcome to 3CR. Great to be here, James. Thanks for having me. Tell us about The Drill's exploration of buried stories from the performance venue, The Drill Hall in Footscray here in Melbourne. So the site of the Women's Circus Home is um, was originally built in 1914. So we're looking at the site as a stimulus for the work that we're making. So we went back... Uh, to its original purpose and started exploring the effects of war on community. Um, what we did find out was that it was a site for mandatory training for boys and men during, in the lead-up to World War One, and that the Footscray community lost um, nearly 350 people, in um, men, as part of the E-Company in uh, the Gallipoli movement. And so we started that. Uh, so it's an interesting juxtaposition to now have us um, housed there. And so that, that was a starting point. And we're really uh, using the site and every nook and cranny in the place for the performance. Yeah, the production comprises 60 members, I believe, of the Women's Circus. How do they all work together? <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun and sometimes challenging experience for everyone. There's now, I guess, the 60 members is comprised of everyone who's been on that journey with us. So the, the process of making a work at Women's Circus is, tends to be across two years. So we invite our membership in to have a conversation about what kind of topics we want to explore, what kind of form we want to work with, obviously circus being underpinned through all of that. And so when we talk about 60, there's 23 performers, but there's an army <laughs> of members behind the scenes and in the lead-up to this that have contributed to the creation of the work. 
So tell us how the production explores World War One and all those incredible issues of grief and loss uh, that come up. Well, it's not just about the, the loss, I suppose. We're really looking at... Um and it, it, it's a historical reimagining. It's through a historical lens. So it won't be that you won't necessarily be an accurate 1914 representation, but it'll, it'll be referencing. More importantly, we're exploring it. It's an immersive experience. So there are nine different locations where performances are taking place, and um, you will be guided through those experiences. So it's not your conventional show <laughs> where you'll be sitting down. So you might move into the hospital room where you'll be invited to lay down with, um, on one of the beds and be served rum and read a letter from the front uh, while you're recovering from one of your injuries. Um, and overarching is a, a, a sort of a, a message of peace. So we're exploring. There was a lot of, um, uh, there was an activist movement at the time as well. So a peace movement uh, that was often led by women in the communities. So uh, we're using that as our overarching message. And I guess the production really explores the role, the incredible roles of women in war as well. Yeah, and and women, uh, young people, uh, those who don't conform to the norms of society, so often those people didn't necessarily have a role to play or were mis- and have been misrepresented or forgotten in the, the history that we celebrate from that time. So I, I suppose that's another aspect that we're exploring. It was very much an era, wasn't it, of buried stories and things being swept under the carpet and a certain homogeneity being promoted in Australia that wasn't necessarily accurate, like you said. Yeah, it's um, and mostly the form as well has been a really, it's a design-driven piece. We've got Emily Berry as our designer. So it'll be a really immersive and beautiful experience, I think, for the audience. Um, there's sort of participatory elements, but it's not like the kind of thing where you'll be dragged onto stage or anything. It's more that you'll be immersed and engaged in activities or um, be presented opportunities to participate. Um, Yeah, so it's been a really, it's a logistical challenge. It's certainly a new form for us, but but we're excited to explore the audience relationship aspect of it, I think. I think the audience experience is going to be a really beautiful one. What's your favourite aspect of it? Look, always the community, the, the work that the community puts into this. So, you know, a lot of these performers and members, some of them have been in every show that we've done, which is now 35 plus. And then for others, this is the first time they've performed in front of an audience. So I think, you know, that journey together in creating a new work uh, towards a common goal is a really powerful one for people. And I really love the sort of transformation that takes place for individuals and as a group. So I think that's my favorite part of wow. making a work. I think from an audience perspective, I feel like just the, the surprise that might happen um, and the gentle surprise that will happen through it is what I hope will um, be a nice uh, the result for audiences. It sounds Unexpected. like an incredible kind of, you know, exercise in team building. And it almost seems like you need military organization to kind of put the whole thing together, which is kind of like an interesting kind of, you know, irony, isn't it? Oh, there's military precision with this one for sure. <laughs> that we've we've had to do a lot of scratching of heads to try and work out what the pathways will look like. But we've got a fantastic team of professionals behind the scenes supporting the development of this new community-led work. So uh, I think it's all coming together. We're at sort of this week we're at our dress rehearsal stages, and it's sort of magically coming together. So <laughs> we're really excited to share the work with um, Melbourne audiences. And I read there's a real exploration of intersectional feminism as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, 
well, I think, look, this one is not, um, this piece of work is not necessarily explicit in, in its form when, when it comes to intersectional feminism, but I did, I reflected on it with the performers not long ago where I said I think even the sheer fact that, you know, 60 women, trans and non-binary people come together every Sunday to share space and create something is inherently <laughs> feminist. So um, it, it's, it's um, I, I think this year, the, the fact that, that we take up space and tell stories is a is the feminist um, act here. <laughs> yeah. And it's great that the women's circus is so inclusive of trans and non-binary people as well. Well, and that's been a journey for the organisation, and it's certainly one that... Um, I think this is the, we only make a large scale work every three years now. We do sort of smaller creative projects and community cabarets and, and other performance opportunities throughout the years. But um, we undertook uh, an explicit journey about six, uh, four years ago to create an inclusive policy so that trans and non-binary people could feel comfortable, hopefully, <laughs> coming to tra- train with us. And we've seen that transformation um, and so this is the first time it's really exciting for us to have uh, a, a community made up of lots of different kinds of people. But it's been a challenge, you know, it's a real challenge when you're having to work in a gendered organization in an inclusive way to find ways. It's, it's, we've had to frame, we've got communication guidelines, we've got an advocacy statement that's going out to media. Because I think the challenge is that we don't want to erase or misrepresent our members who don't identify as being a woman. Yeah, so it sounds like that process was very time-consuming and involved a lot of consultation. So the initial process, definitely, and even now, like it's a work in progress and it's a responsive and evolving space, I think, for us, one that we recognise has to come through a meaningful conversation. And um, we start with the people in the room with us, really. So that's what we did with this show. So definitely the, the people involved help establish of frameworks and guidelines for this show, uh, which, of course, will affect uh, the organization as a whole as well, which has been great. So it's not, it's not without, like, it's sometimes difficult conversations, but I think that's where real change can happen. So, Would you say The Drill is the most challenging production the Women's Circus has done insofar as just putting it all together? N- n- I mean, I don't want to say that because it's been around since 1991, so I know right. they've done massive shows with hundreds like this is a smaller show than some of the other works that they've made i know in the past we've done works where we've had sort of up to 50 or 60 members on stage performing and they seemed equally challenging from a distance anecdotally so certainly in my time i've been with the organization for six years and this has been yeah the most ambitious in regards to production and, and the scope of the production um certainly yeah. yeah, it's an extraordinary production. Give us those details so people can book a ticket. Uh, so head to our website, probably the easiest, womenscircus.org.au. Uh, there's, there's information there for you to book tickets. You can also head to the Do West Arts Festival website. Um, be worth checking out the rest of the program because we're part of that festival, uh, which opens on the 15th. Our show opens on the 21st and has a two-week season, so it closes on the 1st of December. And I can tell you that because of our nearly 30-year history and a large you know, legacy of membership, um, <clears throat> they sell out. <laughs> so get in quick. Devin, thank you so much for joining us oh, today on 3CR. It's been an pleasure. It's a wonderful production, The Drill. Thank you so much for chatting today. Thanks, James.
gold frap there. Deep honey, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, earlier today I spoke with Joe Ball from Switchboard about LGBTIQ community exclusion in the census, their out-and-about program for LGBTIQ elders and suicide awareness. Joe Ball, welcome back to 3CR. It's a pleasure to be here, James. Let's start with the census. Why is the Australian government shutting us out? Look, I think it's important to know that they've never asked these questions previously. So I guess it's more that we're arguing to be included for the first time. I think that, you know, we, 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 there was um, Michael Suka, the, the minister in, responsible for changing the questions on the census. He gets the final say. And Michael Suka, what he had to say about it is he thought that some of the questions were controversial to ask the Australian population. Such as? Such as asking people their sexuality. And asking them um, whether they're gender diverse. You know, I think they, they're worried about uh, annoying certain parts of the populations with those questions. But I guess how I feel about that is, you know, that seems like quite ripe, doesn't it, coming from the Australian Bureau of Statistics who thought it was fine to ask everyone in Australia whether LGBTI or really same-sex people should be able to get married. So it's like they're okay to offend certain, my personal opinion is they're okay to offend certain parts of the population like ourselves, but they're worried about, you know, offending I guess the Christian right predominantly who might be offended by being asked if they're you know heterosexual homosexual bisexual uh, transgender intersex queer asexual that that would somehow offend them and it probably for some of them it would offend them that we are included but we exist so we should be included. Yeah so it's tapping into that kind of narrative about the religious freedom debate religious discrimination debate almost isn't it and and that cohort of coalition voters that the government seems so happy to appease and cater for. Yeah, I think they're politicising the census and nobody ever wants to do that. I think it, it should be a neutral survey and I think they they are, are politicising it by saying that we can't be included. And in fact, for the last two censuses, there's um, or sensi as is what it's called, there has been an inclusion on the sex question of male, female and other. So that's already in there. And why that is already in there is not to be politically correct or to be progressive. It's actually in there because people can legally be other than male and female. So I think following that trajectory, if you can be other things than heterosexual, then there should be a way to capture that in the census. You, of course, manage a community organisation that runs off the smell of an oily rag, switchboard. You've also got a public service background. You must really see the benefits, know the benefits of including questions in the census to determine service provision and funding. Talk us through that. Yeah, I feel very, you know, all the time when you go for grants, you need to prove to the funders that there is a substantial amount of the population that you are servicing um, and that there is a correlation between the, you know, uh, the needs of that population and the existence of that population. And, you know, without us being collected in data sets, it becomes very complicated it's it's invisible and i think about one of the first things that you know trump said about to do in our population is actually to remove our transgender people from um data sets in government forms and i think like if you look at that that's an indication of why they do it, you know, because if, if, if we're included, if we're in data sets, then we become a group that needs to be responded to and our needs need to be responded to. So I think it's invisibilising us. So it's a real form of erasure. I think so. I mean, and with the census, I guess it's it's a continuation of the erasure because we weren't in there in the first place. Um, but the census has that history, doesn't it? Like it didn't include um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people until uh, the 1971 census. So it already has that history of not including people. 
um, and that and that um, you have to fight to be included. But I think you know, following on everything that's happened in two thousand, will be in two thousand and twenty one census. It's pretty much the time has well and truly come for there to be sex, sexuality, and gender questions. You're no stranger, of course, to fighting this government on exclusion. Tell us about Out and About. Last time we spoke, that vital service for LGBTIQ elders had had its funding cut. You fought back. You got it restored. How's all that going? It's been it's so lovely to be able to come in here and tell a good news story um, because often you you fight and you lose um, but we did we, we fought and we won and that was because it was a completely grassroots community campaign um, that you yourself James helped promote absolutely through 3CR and that was a and I'm sure some of the people who are listening here were involved in that campaign too whether it was like writing to the local member which lots of people did do um, people wrote to the aged care minister at the time Ken Wyatt like people did all that agitation and you know because of all that um, we did get all our um, funds restored which is just like an amazing good news story but on top of that we also realized that we wanted to expand out and about past that funding because there's some limitations with the Department of Health funding and that is that um, you have to be to access a service you have to be in receipt of a Commonwealth um like home support program or uh, you have to be on home care or in a residential aged care facility. And not everyone in our community or everyone who needs to be visited is, is meets that criteria. But actually in this year, in uh, April this year, we got a grant from RACV of all places to expand the service to anybody who's over 65 who needs the service. So that's incredible. So like if you're listening and you know someone or you work in aged care, um, Actually, if you know someone who's isolated and, and could use the out and about service, it is more open and more available, more accessible than it's ever been. So actually, we went from a, an experience last year when I spoke to you, James, of thinking about closing the service unless we won back the money to being the service being one third bigger than it was when I spoke to you last. It's incredible. So it's not in danger from this government now the Morrison government's been returned? Well, I think the thing is the grant, you know, like it's, you know, these things are always in jeopardy because we've got to go for the money again um, because it's only a three-year cycle of the money. So in 2021, we'll have to go again and apply for it and go through a similar process. So that could happen. It could happen again. Um, But I think that the program is in a stronger position than it's ever been. Um, I think we made a lot of allies in that, in that process and, yeah, I, I guess I feel like a renewed sense of if you're doing something fantastic and the community knows, like the LGBTIQA plus community knows you're doing something fantastic, what, I've, what I know now is that they'll stand by you and they'll fight and that sometimes you can fight and sometimes you can win. And, it's, and if you don't fight, you lose. LGBTIQ elders are getting much more kind of, you know, discussion. There's much more discourse about them in the LGBTIQ community now. To what extent do you think your campaign actually contributed to that? Hugely. I mean, I think we got the ear of a lot of people in the process. Like it was a hectic time, but um, actually like some amazing organisations like um, Code of Victoria um, came out and supported us. There was actually, and The Senior ran two articles about us. Like there was actually an amazing groundswell, which I guess culminated in, I mean, I think it in some ways it all began here, I would say, as the first kind of media 
groundswell began at 3CR, no surprise there. But from 3CR, you know, we ended up being on drive time on ABC National Radio. I remember, it was great. Um, so it was sort of like that was sort of a huge moment. Um, and it was a build-up over over um, over time to get there. But I think, you know, the pressure that mounted um, – and we had a bit of leverage. I, I can't deny that in the campaign. And you always need leverage in the campaign. And, and because the of the election. Yeah, that's right. And I think – because we got to be able to say, you know um, – this is this is an you know we got to campaign around it I guess in within the context of the federal election where people want to make election promises and I think at the point where I mean the ALP first came out and offered us an election promise if they got elected and I think that was the cascading you know that and the Radio National and the senior article I think was a cascading point for the minister then he realised that things were really you know on the nose for him if he didn't do something about it before, you know, he wanted to take the pressure off him. Um, and so that's when they sort of caved, I think, it was that moment. Let's move on to another really exciting project of Switchboards, uh, your Suicide Awareness podcast. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's been um, a year in the making and uh, we just launched it two weeks ago and it's called Let's Talk About Suicide and you can – Watch it on – I can't watch it. It's a podcast. You can listen to it um, wherever you get your podcast just by searching for Let's Talk About Suicide. And we did that um, podcast with uh, Joy Radio and um, uh, Support After Suicide. And what that podcast is, a 14-episode podcast. That's huge. It's, it's you, you know it, right? Like that's a lot of work. And also every single episode was uh, carefully planned out because you're talking about suicide and there's a lot of things you have to consider when you're, when you're doing that work. Um, and, and it was talking about being bereaved by suicide. So that's the focus is LGBTI um, QA plus people who've been, who've lost someone to suicide. So it's really led by people with a lived experience. Um, so there's, you know, two men who've lost their partner and two women who've lost their best friend and they, their stories run throughout the episodes as we talk about it. I think that although it's a really hard topic, I think anyone who's in a period of bereavement um, and, partic- of course, bereavement around suicide, um, they'll get a lot out of it. And I think also if you're supporting someone who's bereaved, it's really a good podcast for you because it talks about the uniqueness of losing someone to suicide. I think there is a real mm. uniqueness. Um, An and isolation that comes from that uniqueness because it is hard to talk about and people perhaps don't have the skills to kind of seek help or, or let out all those emotions and deal with them. Yeah, there's a double stigma and we talk about that on the podcast because the stigma is suicide has a huge stigma. Even, even the for word. the even for people close to those who have who have yeah yep, like okay. and, and you know people feel like they can't there's a silence uh, around it and a, uh, a shame. Um, what's why I say stigma because I think there's deep shame around talking about um, someone who's suicided, and then the other stigma is being LGBTIQA plus and having someone suicided. You know I think um, so. You know, and 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 one of the men in the podcast he talks about having going to a bereavement group, and having the experience like a face to face bereavement group, and he talks about um, the struggle he had to tell people in the group that he was gay and that the person who had died was his partner and that he was a he, 
And I think that's that's unfortunately not a unique experience for people when they go to seek help, um, whether it's, you know, GPs or, you know, they, they have to deal with the mental health issue or the depression or the grief they're feeling and they have to deal with, you know, other discrimination for being queer. So it's... And I think it's good that we talk about that in the podcast um, and ultimately the whole project of the podcast is to make it easier for people during this this terrible time in their life um, and to make people feel ultimately not alone. And I think that we, we who were involved, we made the podcast that we all wanted to have that didn't exist. And so I think that's when real beauty happens, I guess, is you make the thing that you wanted. Um, in the hope that it will be useful to other people. And I feel that it will be really useful. And we've already heard some early feedback about the podcast that people are getting a lot out of it and they're liking it. And, you know, people can also, there's an email included in the podcast. People can also dialogue with us about, you know, whether they're finding it useful. And yeah, so I, I and we might, ev- we might even record a couple more episodes if there's, if there's an interest. Joe, where can people go if they do need that support mm-hmm. to talk about suicide bereavement? Yeah, I mean, for starters, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, uh, this, the program that we worked with was Jesuit Support Services and um, they run a support after suicide program and bereavement groups and case management. And that is somewhere you can go. However, that you know, you really have to be um, in Melbourne to access that service or, or be able to travel to Melbourne. And I know that listeners might be listening from all over uh, to 3CR. So the other place is I'd, I'd, I'd suggest you, you contact Switchboard and you call us um, and have some of those conversations. And you can call us on um, from 3pm to midnight every day of the year on 1800 184 And of course, we'll have a conversation about, you can call us if you are feeling suicidal. Um, and I encourage anyone who's affected by this conversation or any, or any sort of thoughts of suicide to contact us. But you can also contact us if you're supporting someone um, who's suicidal, so you're a carer of or, you know, um, you yourself are bereaved. Like, you know, it's just – and all of our volunteers who are on the phone have had training in this area now. Um, that's been a, a part of us doing this work is that we've actually put all volunteers through what um, this training called ASSIST, which is two days' worth of training. So, yeah, that's a good place to start is, is to contact Switchboard. Love your organisation, Joe. You do such vital work for our community. Thanks so much for coming into 3CR today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's just a pleasure. All I can ever be to you is the darkness that we know and this regret I got accustomed to. Once it was the ride when we were at our high, waiting for you in the hotel at night. I knew I had him at my match. But every moment we get snatched I don't know why I got so attached It's my responsibility You don't own nothing to me But to walk away I have no progressivity He walks away The sun goes down He takes the day But I'm grown And in your way In this blue shade Do I stress the man when there's so many real things at hand? We could have never had it all. We had to hit a wall. So this is inevitable withdrawal. If 
living a fast up one of you. And perspective for shit's true. I'll be some next man's other woman, so I can't play myself again. Should just be my own best friend. I fuck myself in the head with stupid man. He walks away. The sun goes down. Say no regrets and no most of no day. Cause as we kiss goodbye, the sunset. So we are history. The shadow covers me. The sky above the place. Lonely lovers see. He walks away. The sun goes down. Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their financial support of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex, and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.